the purpose of the Jewish people is to bring is for us to bring God godliness into the world and therefore it's not surprising that if our job is to bring the spiritual into a physical we're going to be forced throughout our history to become a little bit detached or a lot a bit detached <laughs> to uh, to the physical world to physical existence Welcome back to JTV Podcast. Today we're going to discuss happiness, pleasure, optimism, pessimism. And is Judaism a religion of optimism or pessimism? So actually before I get going, I want to ask you, based on that question alone, Oli, would you describe Judaism as a pessimistic or optimistic religion? I'd say Judaism is a thoroughly optimistic religion. Uh, well, I actually have a problem with the word religion when it comes to Judaism, but that's for want of a better word, religion. Mm-hmm. Um, Jews, on the other hand, not always. <laughs> <laughs> and that, by the way, goes all the way back to biblical times. <laughs> you know? You mean a wider thing than just classic English, you know, miserable, the miserable attitude of English people combined uh, into Judaism? I mean, it's a wider... Yeah, no, I, I, just, I think a deep sense of angst. Okay. Um, runs deep through the Jewish veins, and there's good. There's 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 many um, important uh, spiritual and psychological reasons for that, uh, which we can perhaps delve into and perhaps okay. try to understand and see how it can be. Well, those things first, can be addressed. But explain yes. to me why you call Judaism an optimistic um, religion in the inverted commas. As Rabbi Sachs said, Jews are the only people whose golden age is in the future. You know, we uh, await the messianic era where the, the world is at peace, where human beings understand the importance of being good, of of uh, being, of, of of valuing every single individual, of of uh, having a relationship with our Creator, of knowing the the reason for our, our being. Um, so we await that, and that, that hasn't yet come, and therefore built into the whole spiritual and psychological psyche of Judaism is that we are that. The world is heading in the right direction, whether we do anything about it or not. And our job is simply, do we want to play our part, our role in, in, in you know, putting those, those building blocks on, on the building? Um, so we're absolutely, you know, convinced that the world is going to become perfect and whole and godly and good. Um, and so it's not so much about what the ending will be, but what Judaism says you have the chance to play a role in that story it's like when uh um esther talks to mordechai and she and mordechai is trying to persuade her to go and speak to the king which could mean she she might get um you know um put to death for doing that because you're not allowed to approach the king uninvited um and she is uh, mordechai says to esther look either way salvation is going to come for the jews so the question is do you want to be part of the salvation do you want to have your chapter in the story of uh, Jewish history and it's funny in some ways you'd look at that as like not a particularly motivational talk because it's like saying no don't worry salvation's going to come either way like we're totally optimistic about that we're going to be fine God's going to look after God's going to save the Jews um, so in some ways she could say oh I can relax then be saying no no salvation is guaranteed but do you want to fulfill the 
what is potentially the the purpose of your very being here and if you don't do that the world's going to be okay in the end but but what about you what about your mission what about your destiny you know so i think that's the the jewish approach i don't know a person could say though if you were take the poem story the ethic example if you were to zoom out a little it's uh, her struggle to save the jews in a very sad point in jewish history that the jews at the start of the poem story have gone a bit off the boil and were overly involved in the persian society and had to be saved and brought back and then if you zoom out even further, just across Jewish history, it's filled with episodes of sadness and destruction and pain and suffering. In Bible times, the, the suffering of the forefathers, you've got the, uh, the, the years enslaved in Egypt, the suffering in the desert afterwards. Then throughout the Nach, the prophets, the writings, is filled with also tough times of the Jews. And then wider Jewish history, crusades, expulsion, more recently the Holocaust. The Jewish history has been plagued with very tough times. Yeah. So whilst we've had room to be optimistic within small moments within that, couldn't persons have a very pessimistic view in Judaism based on our you know, experience over the past few thousand years? Um, they could do. They definitely would have good reason to right now, standing back, looking back at Jewish history. Um, I would say two things. The first thing I'd say is for a Jew today now, we are so... The, the, the messianic era is imminent. And so I think we have much greater reason to be confident that that's something that can happen within our lifetime. And um, the the age of... Um, we, you what, know, why the, so? Is because we're not so oppressed right now. We have more freedoms nowadays. To be why so people. what? Oh, oh, would you say that um, the messianic era is even more imminent? Because the time's nearly up. It's got to happen by the year 6,000. We're in the year 5... We just entered 5782. God also has a track record for ending exiles early. Um, (laughs) So time really is uh, running out now. So it's got to be any any year, any day now. Um, And I think also, you know, the ghetto walls have come down. Uh, I think we're no longer in the age of strong, deep ideological hostility uh, towards Jews that was in the past. I think today we're in a different kind of crisis. It's one more of people are directionless and people are looking for, you know, I I don't think a a lot of the anti-Semitism that we might see today or honestly like violence or bad acts of badness. A lot of it, I think, just comes from lacking di- lacking direction we live you know an age of foolishness as some people call it rather than an age of like deep-seated like defiant uh, evil um and so i think that in some way should give us reason for optimism that we have the, the chance for the jewish voice now to really come through um but if you were a jew living uh you know two thousand years ago 100 years ago 500 years ago um where did the optimism come um i think of rabbi kiva who, when he saw the, the Talmud recalls, that when he saw the destruction of the temple, his fellow rabbis were despairing, and he was laughing. And he said, there was a prophecy of the, exile, of the temple's destruction, but there was also a prophecy that's going to be rebuilt. Now, you could stand there and be like, okay, Rabbi Kiva, that's great, but that's you know not going to happen for quite a while. Mm. Um, although I don't think they necessarily knew that at the time they didn't they, i'm not sure how many i, I don't know I, I, the first exile I, I, was 70 years it was known that the second one would be longer i don't know no but this i think this was i think this was the second one 
Yeah, the end of the second. Yeah, one, this was the second one that's been no temples. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So like you could it fits. Yeah, I think there was probably a sense that this is we're we're in for a bit of a long haul, um, but it's so it's not necessarily things are gonna. I think the optimism doesn't necessarily come from things are going to be all well and good in my lifetime, but it's that they will eventually. Every, you know, all human beings will be resuscitated and there will be a perfect world. But I can be confident. So I can be confident that we'll get there in the end, even if it's not necessarily in my lifetime. Okay. But the I think part of the uh, mindset is understanding that everything that's happening along the way, including the destruction, is all part of a process even the destruction itself towards redemption, because God is a creator, not a destroyer. So even the things, nothing bad, if bad means wasn't meant to happen, that's not Jewish. So it's understanding that, you know, everything's part of a process leading towards a good uh, outcome. And that's a, a psychological mindset that can allow someone to move forward and also to understand that I can play my role in getting there to that that promised land and even though it may be very long and i might not get to the promised land myself um rabbi kiva saw that the the the, the happiness and, and fulfillment i can get in my lifetime and the optimism i can feel is that i know we're going to get there in the end it might not be in my lifetime but i can do my bit to build towards. to continue to build the blocks of the 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 the, the first foundations of the the third temple so i think Jews who are unable to have a particularly nice existence uh, get their sense of um, contentment or ability to push on through a deeper sense of, I have a job to do. And when you've got a job to do, you're actually, and you're needed for something, for a purpose, you're actually able to um, forego or perhaps think a little bit less about the quality of one's existence because you're focused on your job. It's like if you've, you know, the height of the coronavirus and your job as a doctor and you're rushing from patient to patient, then you end up realizing, I've, I haven't eaten since like yesterday or like, and I, I haven't, I've, I've, there's so many things, you, your, your existence almost becomes a little bit less when you're so focused on a job and it's so meaningful and it's so necessary and you're so needed, you, you actually find that you know your quality of your not necessarily the small things can be very uncomfortable sure but you can get a bit more comfortable being uncomfortable because the soul sort of takes take the lead so it sounds like it's a perspective on the, the situation the situation itself is neither pessimistic or optimistic or bad or good happy or sad rather it's one's approach within their current situation that could dictate whether they live a pessimistic or optimistic Jewish life would that be fair to say yeah, yeah. I'm also wondering, I'm thinking about, you've spoken about the, a very, uh, the broad picture of Jewish history. On a day-to-day -day Jewish life, uh, people often complain that Judaism, and cry out, that Judaism is filled with tons of seemingly unnecessary and very tri trivial laws and rules and regulations, what you can eat, what you can't eat. You've got to pray, you've got to wear certain, for many you have to wear tefillin, you've got to go to synagogue, not go to synagogue, build a sukkah, you've got to, you know, clean your house full of bread for one part of the year and only eat a certain very not so flavorful um kind of crackery thing our day-to-day our -day life and our, our yearly existence is 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 filled with responsibilities and burdens some that can feel quite meaningful and some that can feel very 
trivial and at times annoying is the day-to-day Jewish existence with, you, uh, with the laws encroaching within it. Could that be seen as, a, as an, optimistic, an optimistic existence or a happy or a sad, a, a pleasureful or a you know, stressful and aggravating existence? How, how, I don't know if I'm formulating my question as clear. I hear the question. What do you think? What do I think? I've chosen to be the interviewer, so I don't have to get... I don't know. Look, I think the, your idea and perspective is very, is very true. That um, all this kind of stuff can be seen as simply stuff. If you find it meaningful, like your example with the doctor and coronavirus, if you find the laws, the obligations, as they enhance your life, they're meaningful to you, you understand the purpose behind them, and they add to your life, then they can bring joy and meaning and purpose and fulfilment. However, if you're sitting there and you have no personal relationship with these things you have to do, you feel obliged and forced to show up to synagogue, you feel forced to eat this, you feel annoyed that you can't do that on the, on the Sabbath day. If, if they don't mean anything to you, then it's just it's, it's obvious and it's easy for them to become just trivial, annoying things in the way. What do you think can make them meaningful to someone? A, a personal connection. I mean, How, how does can, that happen? Um, a very it's often spoken about nowadays that um, the restrictions that people put on technology on on Shabbat that they um, technology didn't exist two thousand years ago as we know it for sure and the phone smartphones social media all these are very very modern things but due to the um, uh, understanding of the rabbis when electricity started coming out they decreed that all electricity devices and how people can break uh, are against the the laws of Shabbat to, so you know to activate and to use electricity and therefore uh, now we've now found out that point being is we can't really use social media and phones and, and text so much on Shabbat so in the past few years we've learned how it's almost addiction and being enslaved to social media and technology can actually be harmful to our mental health to our our, our life our enjoyment and having a forced clean break one day out of seven is incredibly helpful now for people who have that problem with technology and then, and who didn't keep Shabbat growing up and were kind of enslaved for this. And now they introduce this idea of making a break from their busy working week. And they feel the benefits of having the ability to switch off and to get back in touch with themselves and their families and have real conversations and to have a level of self-introspection, to feel that personal benefit to them. All of a sudden makes the idea of having a break on Shabbat very meaningful to them. Yeah. This is an idea that could be so easily touched in, uh, tapped into 100 years ago, 50 years ago. So, are you aware of the book, The Sefer HaChinuch? Sefer HaChinuch, yeah, yeah. So, it came along about, maybe like, I think around like a thousand years ago. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong. What and what did it called? do? Mm-hmm. It came along to give reasons to help us understand the mitzvot. 13th century Spain. Okay, yeah. all right, come on. Yeah, yeah. I think that's good enough. So, <laughs> um... And it was quite controversial because it was giving us reasons to help us understand why we do something and how it can enhance one's life. Why do you think it was controversial? Well, and why hadn't something come along sooner? I guess I want to the line, which is um, because you're you're giving plenty. You're trying to say here's you know 
people need to build a personal connection with the mitzvah and mm. needs need to connect to it. So here's, for example, how I connect to Shabbat, and that, you know, because it's like a time to switch off and that kind of stuff. And the Sefer Chinuch, in some ways, was trying to do that. Here's, you know, some good, compelling arguments, pragmatic reasons why the mitzvah uh, can, you know, how you can how they benefit one. Sure. Um, why do you think it was controversial? I mean, there's a distinction, I feel, between a reason and the reason. If you're told that a reason for me personally, me as Sam, that I find Shabbos very enjoyable is because I get to switch off from technology and I get to, it's helps better for my mental health and those sort of, I give those sort of reasons as my reasons, that's fine. And you've got no problem with that. If I say to you that the reason that Shabbat is beneficial is so you can switch off but the same and it does, and you personally don't find that reason so compelling, then that bothers you. But it began, I'm pretty sure, the book begins with the caveat mm. that we are not presenting the reason. We're just okay. presenting reasons. Perhaps. So why do you think it's so controversial? So I don't know, maybe, maybe people didn't listen to the caveat. So let's, let's imagine... What, what do you say? Let, well, let's imagine uh, you have, you're married and your wife tells you, um, I don't like it when you leave the, 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 the dining room chair like slightly to the side and you say why is that the right response <laughs> I hear what you're saying no no is that, is that, is that the right response I mean uh, in, in what sense is it I guess no so what is the right response in her eyes it's not the right response why is it not the right response in her eyes because you're uh, you're basically by saying why you're kind of putting a caveat that I will only do it if the reason for, that you want me to move the chair in this way makes sense to me. Right, and what's what's the reason that sh- should be a good enough reason? That she wants it. Exactly. Yeah, and I hear that. Now, the exact same thing applies with mitzvot. When God says, can you please do this? Can you please um, not, not use electricity on Shabbat? Mm-hmm. Can you please build um, a tent outside your house on, on for seven days of the year? In English September. And you say... Why? Is that the right answer? If God comes to you and says that, Although or has I, I, God just given you the, the a good enough reason, which is He asked you to do it for sure? So, he, but is, is anything wrong with saying to one's wife, "I'd be glad to move the chair in this direction"? Of course, anything for you, honey. But for my own personal interests, would you tell me the reason as to why? Is that is that putting a I is think, that lowering the level? Is that me? yes, it is. I think no. I think you can go there. But I think ultimately, if you are, if you really, you know, if if you're married to your wife, if this is your wife, you know, your her happiness and well-being is there's there there should be you no. Know, of course, there's going to be other reasons that you may that may or may not be relevant, may or may not make sense to you. But there is ultimately, you would agree, no greater reason or motivation than it, it's what she wants for sure, right? Exactly. I, I don't think I'm, I'm by asking why and accepting to do it. You're saying I'll only do it if it makes sense to me. Then I understand how that's a big problem. Yeah. If you're saying I'll do it regardless, but I'd like yeah. to know why. No, but what I'm I saying find is unhealthy. No, I, find but, that, I find that even more healthy. No, what I'm saying is what I'm saying is if you're looking for how I can get a personal connection to something mm-hmm. or I can get meaning from something, for sure you can try and find. That. There is no greater meaning or, or sense of personal connection one can get than I'm doing this because it means something to God. But then, by that logic, couldn't you say that all mitzvot? could either have deep, you know, reasons to them or just be completely random. There's a bunch of random uh, sort of tasks in our lives that God asks us to do. And by running over these hoops and doing all these random things, 
doing them only because he's asked us to do, asked to do them, and therefore that shows our love. So, therefore saying that a lot of the mitzvot, the fact that we build a hut and we eat matzah and keep Shabbat, are kind of meaningless, but we, the only meaning we have is that Hashem doesn't. So that's not the Jewish view. I, I had once thought that, like, did God just pick at random? Okay, pig's not kosher. There's a, no, mm. there's, there's, the Torah is, when God came down to Mount Sinai and, and revealed the Torah, he was actually revealing himself. It's the word revelation, right? Reveal, right. to reveal. Yeah. So the Torah is God in written form. And so it's, it's his essence. So Shabbos he, he it, you know the commentaries talk about the fact that he keeps shabbat okay he puts yeah. on to Mos, we moshe saw that god was wearing tefillin now what does that tefillin mean it's not literal okay yeah it's i know it's not literal well actually it is literal but our tefillin is the metaphor for god's tefillin our hand is a metaphor for God's hand. We think we are. We think God's the metaphor. No, no, he he's the creator. So we're we're in his image. So he has a, a infinite hand, whatever that means, right? It's not physical. He has to fill it. So all the mitzvot are things that are meaningful to God that God does Himself. We, the commentary says God keeps His laws, mm-hmm. and so he, when He revealed Himself, He said, "This is me." And so by you doing this. I'm asking you to do this, which is in and of itself exceptionally meaningful and astounding that God in any way needs something from us. Um, And so when you do a mitzvah, what you're basically saying to God is, I want to do what what means, uh, you've asked me to do this and I want to be with you. I want to, I want, I want to, I want, he's saying, when he came down to Mount Sinai, he said, I'm the Lord, your God. And we mm-hmm. often just, we, 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 we should have brushed over that. Oh, lovely, okay, you took you out of Egypt. He's saying, I am yours. I'm giving myself over to you. This is me. In written, and I, I, I want to be, I want to be yeah. yours. It's, it was a marriage. So Mount Sinai was a marriage. Um, and mitzvot, by us doing mitzvot, we're saying, and we will be yours. You know, you can be ours. Um, and so I, so of course, finding meaning and other th- ways in which the mitzvot, you, you know, you c- prodding the depth of them and, and finding pragmatic ways in which they help. But the point is, even if we didn't have those things, there's nothing more meaningful than if you want it. Yes, 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 yes. And that was what Nasev and Ishma was. We will do and we will listen. God comes to you and says, can you do something for me? Yes. Because it means I, so it's not, and I think that is, so, you know, when you talk about burdens, responsibilities, it, I feel like the burden is lifted because, you know, you have the choice whether to, it, whether to, to do it. It's not that you have to. And I don't even think the threats of punishment like, and stuff would work anymore today. I just think we're kind of, we graduated from that. I just, I, I don't know. I just don't think people get so easily threatened by those things anymore. Um, instead, it's just what one ought to do kind of got you know like god is waiting like just extending the hand like saying well will you um and yeah i think it's so much better to see it in those terms than a sense of pressure a sense of obligation just a sense of this means something to my creator yeah i guess i think i've got this sort of uh, fear that this is very high level we're describing of this, not blind, but just such a deep trust and love of Hashem, 
that to question him doesn't even come into the picture. Oh, right. why not? not well, well you've got to get, you've got to, you've got to overcome that hurdle first. I agree. Oh, I'm saying, but it's also you can also very easily blur that with almost this blindness, this sort of um, lack of effort to go like, I, 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 I don't care for the reason. I don't want to put work hard. I don't want to work it out. I don't want to. Try and tap the limits first. I'll just, you know, if I'm told to do it, I'll do it. The books, instructions, follow A, follow B. No. Uh, so I think that the, in between that, in my abstract hierarchy, in between that, there is a healthy level of inquisitiveness. Of I want this is Hashem's wisdom. I want to learn more. I want to attach to it. I understand that I want to aim for this seemingly unattainable level to me of um, this just revelation, understanding. I, I just, I just accept and not say Anishma. But in order to get there, I've got to be pragmatic. I've got to accept that I've got to motivate myself. I've got to believe on my terms and feel on my terms that I want to do these mitzvahs. And I've got to encourage myself, motivate myself along the way to get to this high, I will do and I will listen to the Nishma approach. It's so funny because I am actually feel the complete opposite. Look, of course, one if one was to do this and, and engage in that, you'd need to, of course, accept certain premises that there is a God, that he his Torah is his will, that kind of stuff. Sure. But let's say you accept those premises. Um, first of all, I'm not against trying to understand the reasons and, <laughs> I mean, and, 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 and like understand the depth and the wisdom behind any mitzvah. That's fantastic and it can absolutely enhance mm. your thing. I'm say, I, I, what I'm saying is I don't think there's... I think the most meaningful thing you can do is this is something that means something to him right and it's something that he needs of you so it's and 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 by the way that is relation that's a real relationship which is the purpose of it so if it's this means something to me i can say about it. that's great you can you know feel very spiritually elevated but where's the relationship when you do it because it means a, re- a relationship we know real like a, a, a strong healthy relationship is when i do something because it makes my partner happy and i'm doing it for them so if you, but I, if I'm doing it, oh, because this gives, you know, that that's great if it can get get you there. But I've also, I also feel that for me, instinctively, this is, I I find it much more beautiful and easy to connect to than trying to find reasons why it it it, it, it makes sense to me, because I used to have an approach where it's kind of like I would explain rationally why one needs to do this and one. You know, if I don't do this, then it could have like spiritual consequences and all those kind of things. Um, but it's actually very self-serving. <laughs> and when you do that, when you're self, when you treat how does it help? Me? When you treat me to what yeah. as self-serving, yeah, it's that is miserable. In my, at least I I found that to be because it's not a relationship. It can only be a relationship if it means something to him. And I I, I was taught for a bit that it doesn't God doesn't have any you know, emotions or needs or anything like that. And, or like, you know, it doesn't actually, it's, it's only for your benefit. You know, mm. this is just for you. You're the needy one. You're the one. And that just really, so basically you end up treating it as like this kind of uh, uh, game almost. And it's just like, it's, 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 it felt detached from, yeah, relationship. And so it's, I find, I personally relate, like, of course, as you know, I love learning, I love teaching, all that kind of stuff. But I find the approach of this just this is something I'm being asked to do, and it means something to him. Rather than thinking about what can I gain from this, it's it's 
it's healthy and it's it's what a real relationship is you know there's a story of a, a, a girl that went up to a rabbi once and said rabbi you know i'm i never i don't usually go to the mikvah i've never been before actually but like i'm i'm thinking of maybe going now like you know um i think it was before her wedding or something and she said but like am i gonna like am i gonna feel like religious afterwards like i don't, I don't want to become that like it's just not really my whole vibe he's, she's like well, you know what, what am i going to feel afterwards and he goes mm, you're probably gonna feel wet <laughs> <laughs> and he was like so what he's basically saying is we we ex- don't you don't need to expect that you're going to feel a big deep spiritual high after doing any particular mitzvah in order for it to be meaningful it's meaningful to him and that is enough for me at least to cap to, to, that 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 is incomparably powerful, and that's and we know it works in relationships. You know, oh, I, I'm, uh, how did I feel after doing the shop shopping for my wife or for my mum or for, you know, I don't I don't feel like like I've really done something good. In fact, it was quite annoying actually. Fine, it doesn't matter. You made her happy. You made her life a bit easier. Why does it have to be all about you? You know, <laughs> and so like so so we should see Jewish rituals um, less about we shouldn't really call it rituals we should call it service you know we because rituals implies oh i'm gonna get some big spiritual high and like no in the same way that you know you might you might you might not um and sometimes people really do feel things and that's that's great um but sometimes doing something for your doing something for your friend or for your wife your husband or your parents whatever can be an annoyance or it's just a thing you do and you know just knowing it's helped made their life a bit easier is uh, is good enough. And oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you also have to accept that the common uh, claim against a pure altruistic um, any pure altruistic uh, deeds is that it's always a bit for for you. People are always a, a, a bit selfish in some sense. That yes, you're doing it for someone else because you feel better by doing it. You can't fully escape, I'd say, the self-centered, not self-centered, but a, a level of ego within that. I don't think that's bad at all. I don't think that's unhealthy. I also don't think that's avoidable. Um, I think size you can get. But into your that. emphasis here is not that it's me, me, me. Your emphasis here is this is what Hashem wants. Yes, and ironically, yes, you, you want to play the game in terms of but well, that makes no, you happy. Yeah. We actually are happier when we're less focused on our needs because when we yeah. when we focus on our needs, they're endless, and we never sat. You're never satisfied. Well, let's talk about happiness for, for a bit. Just a, a, a neat transition. Um, broad question, how would you define happiness? Um, first of all, I'd like to caveat everything we're about to ask <laughs> in the happiness thing by saying this is not something I always excel at. Um, what, happiness uh, or, or defining yeah, happiness? And the happiness. Okay. And, and like a work, you know, it's, 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 it's a challenge, a work in progress. And I, yeah, I... I don't want to feel like I'm kind of standing on some kind of pedestal. I really, you know, this is, it's a challenge. Um, but I think happiness uh, is defined very clearly by us ages. They say who is happy, he, is, he or she who is content with their lot. Actually, it says who's, who's wealthy. Um, yes, who, sheer, who's wealthy. Yeah, sorry, who's, yeah, but I think, I think, I think that's I know, I know also applying mean. to happiness. Yes, I think yeah, it's yeah. talking about happiness as well. Um, but being content and, and, and pleased with what one has. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm. I think a lot of it comes down to, I think it's a two-pronged approach. Um, it's 
it's a, I think a part of it's about about expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it's just about headspace, focus. So if you're focused on, you know, your mission and your 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 impact on the world and what and you, you know doing then your headspace can be focused is going to be taken up by doing good things whereas if your headspace is focused on um you know things you you don't have or um your own, one's own needs then it it can sometimes it's necessary mm. um but it can you know affect one's one's happiness and sense of contentment but i think it, it all this ties back to the same principle of like where is your focus and the, the, who is ha- one who is happy with their lot which means their focus is on it's all it's, it's just mindset you and know? they're not focusing on wanting more 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 their focus is, is on their lot and their goal and their, and their job and their yeah. situation yeah I focus hope. on you know, yeah I are, you, are you familiar by the way with the uh, the world happiness report no have heard of this it's uh, i think it's published by the un and it's uh, i think it comes out i think they do it yearly but often the scandinavian countries seem to come up very highly and the UK seems to come out quite low. In fact, I think it's the UK and America. The, the, often the wealthiest countries in the West seem to come out quite low. And I'm not sure what it is about Scandinavian countries. that They historically seem to thrive in it. But I looked it up. Um, just a lot of data and graphs. But I looked up actually the variables that they use, the criteria that they define their happiness reports. And I wanted to see, like, compare that to maybe a more Jewish point of view. According to their websites, they say there are six key variables. Uh, income, a person's income, freedom, uh, a person's trust in government, uh, if they have a healthy life expectancy, uh, and um, if they have social support from family and friends, and also generosity, if they feel like they are a generous person. And they put together those sort, those six things, they try and score, score the average person in that country on those six things, and define sort of, on average, how happy a person is in those nations. And they're not poor criteria by any definition of mind, but I think in many areas they hit the nail on, on the head and they are often linked to sort of purpose and goal and satisfaction and, and headspace but I, I, I my first glance my first approach was they, they see they feel quite sort of limited quite sort of um, almost basic in a way because they leave out a more divine world global or ex- bigger than oneself purpose a greater purpose in community and mankind and the world as we know it. I also thought about, um, it's an idea that I often heard in Aisha Torah, I believe that the late Rav Noach Weinberg, of best memory, who founded Aisha Torah in Jerusalem, uh, often spoke about happiness and pleasure. He made the point that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm combining ideas I've heard uh, in his name and from his, his students, that an Eskimo has about 60 words in their language for snow. Why? Because when you're surrounded by snow, you have to become sort of an expert in different kinds of snow, thin snow, thick snow, right? So they have all these different words. In Judaism, we have a ton of words about happiness. We have simcha, gila, ditsa, and they all have different sort of um, meanings to them. And why does Judaism, why does Hebrew, the whole language, Lashon HaKodesh, God's language, have so many different words that are different aspects of happiness because maybe happiness and joy is a key part of, of our Yiddishkeit and maybe we have a responsibility to become experts, connoisseurs in happiness and pleasure 
Rav Nach often used to describe human beings as pleasure seekers. He said the, uh, the way that you can sort of identify the purpose of an object is by its function. So a pen, if you pick it up, you can do, it can be a back scratcher, it can turn on light switches with an extended arm, but its best function is to be used as a pen. Human beings do a lot of stuff, but at the core of all the things that we do, we're trying to find a certain level of pleasure. Therefore, we are, by design, pleasure seekers. So we have this sort of basic uh, pre-programmed position of trying to seek out pleasure. And Judaism is filled with different kinds of pleasure, happiness, and joy, and richness. I heard a definition from uh, Rav Gav, Rav Gavriel Friedman, who you've interviewed on JTV. Uh, on the roof of Torah, over in an like, amazing sunny day overlooking the Western Wall. And it's quite, uh, I remember because you, you got like nice snazzy sunglasses, both of you. <laughs> so I think it's quite a cool, cool image. But he defined it as happiness is the feeling that one gets when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Like, first, you've got to, you know, I guess, assess and assume and, and work out what is it you want to be doing. And then by doing that, that will bring happiness. In fact, it's very reminiscent of the opening of Messias Yisharim. Uh, a, musa, a, a book put out by Rav Moshe uh, Chaim Lazata, the Ramchal, about character traits, development and growth. And a person must first identify their role, their unique role in this world, and then do that. And that's how they will uh, bask in the, the joy and the throne of God, the, the ultimate happiness. Another famous age class uh, was, and you said you can tell before, before we were recording today, you have some issues with this one. Uh, it's the five levels of pleasure. A very famous Rav Nach class, very famous each class still taught today. And the essence of the class is building up levels of pleasure. It starts at the most basic level, a very physical level of pleasure, like a chocolate cake. It tastes nice, you know, it's, it's enjoyable when you're having it, but it's fleeting. You, you don't remember the chocolate you had yesterday that much because, you know, it's cake, you moved on. And you go up, you add some love and meaning and construction and, and giving, and there are different levels of, of, of pleasure. I can't remember the exact order of my head. But do you remember what uh, the highest level of pleasure is? And it's the, they, honestly, they end the class, they mention it, end the class, and everyone goes out for lunch. Relationship and with God. Relationship with God, yeah, transcendence, a relationship with God. The highest level we should strive for is not the material things or the more meaningful things we can find in this world, but to rise above that, to find some sort of relationship with God. Yeah. In writings I've read about, in preparation for this podcast about, is Judaism an optimistic, pessimistic religion? If you were to analyse it from an external point of view... The Jewish struggle, the Jewish life, the Jewish history is plagued with just suffering and pain and anguish and anxiety and just stress. Then have you ever read uh, Rav uh, Joseph B. Soloveitchik's book, Lonely Man of Faith? But it's basically battling with like, this inner struggle of man, of the, the struggles of man in this world. And then it's a responsibility to connect to their, to their creator and all the struggles within that. And it's, just, it's, it's lonely and it's tough and it's, it's painful. Jewish life can be re- really, really tough. Uh, some of the lines I've read in, in certain pieces of writing I found sort of said that it, it's obvious to a person that by looking externally at Judaism, you can't say it's anything but a pessimistic, almost unenjoyable existence. Except, and a lot of these writings seem to conclude, however, the ultimate goal, the ultimate thing is to connect with the creator. If we have that connection with the creator, that is the ultimate pleasure. It's just, if we were to get there and reach that high level, then all the suffering would make sense. Our purpose would, would make sense and it wouldn't be in vain and we, we'd, we'd enjoy that real happiness, that real pleasure. I feel like I've, I've, I've said, I've gone in so many different random directions in the past. No, minute. no, it's totally coherent. Um, I'll tell you what, what I thought breathe. was the, the 
my my only my only issue with the whole thing about talking about ple- being very focused on pleasure when you mm-hmm. talk about trying to you know be happy and that kind of thing is because to a, to achieve what he's to, what he's talking about uh, or what I was talking about and and what you know we're saying is that is the highest level of pleasure the whole the point is you need to stop focusing on your own pleasure it's like a bit of a you know it's a catch 22 yeah it's a catch 22 yeah you if you're focused on how much pleasure am i getting that's not gonna that, that won't work so the point is st- if you frame it as pleasure seeking you know that, that if you're if you frame your judaism and your 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 meaning and everything as a, as about how much pleasure am i going to get it's it actually it's 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 a totally wrong-headed approach because actually i'm i'm less skeptical about the whole can people be altruistic um i think that's when we when we really thrive is when we actually drop a focus on our quality of existence and I, i'm i'm really no one to talk on this i'm just talking purely uh you know in, in principles uh rabbi manis friedman gave a ted talk about the mean he called it the meaning of life um and he makes a distinction between the quality of one's existence and the quality of one's life um existence is my you know material wealth the comfort that i have in my life the things that you know that affect uh me or make my life easier so to speak um and then life is something that cannot be taken away from one for as long as one has breath in their body which is our ability to make moral decisions to relate to a higher purpose um to impact other people and just to actually just 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 be happy and enjoy existing being being present in in um today and 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 also making space for others and sharing your existence with your existence with others um and as he said people the quality of people's existence can change it can vary um but the quality of one's life cannot and you referenced earlier that happiness um uh data i it's it's fairly safe to say that you have far higher levels of depression and unhappiness in more uh, wealthy first world countries than you do in third world countries and i think part of that is down to levels of expectation about their existence they have a far lesser existence it's almost like they've given it up to some extent and they just focus instead on living um whereas here we have far higher expectations um of equality of existence and therefore higher demands and also some people that have very high quality of existence and they they they're not focused on the living parts the life part the meaning part so actually existence without life it's 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 quite empty and that also can be another reason for, for for misery um but you spoke also about the jewish experience and it being very difficult and painful and tragic um we're reading the final parshas of um, the Torah um, at the moment, and the final few parshas, Moshe is really Moses is talking to the Jewish people, and he's saying, um, "You're going to, you know, they're standing on the brink of the promised land. You're about to enter it, but I'm afraid to tell you, you're not going to be here long. You're going to get exiled, scattered. You're going to have a very miserable time. Things are going to be difficult, painful. You're going to get persecuted. The quality of your existence is going to be really, really difficult." as God's chosen people. So what he's actually saying is, then he says those words, choose life. And he said, 
to focus on living for your, the higher purpose for 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 meaning for connection to uh you know clinging to mitzvot as your your cause and your mission and that's what it really means when he says choose life he's saying my strong recommendation to you as god's chosen people who have to go through a very bitter existence for a couple of thousand years for whatever reason that we can't perhaps understand fully he's saying um just maybe give up your existence a little bit give up a strong attachment to it strong expectations of it and instead focus on living and as i say this is something that i struggle with massively and the jewish ideal absolutely is to have both a high quality of existence and a high quality of living and we believe that's going to be the the messianic um that will be the messianic era of course and that should be something everyone should has every right to aspire to but the point is while we're still not there and I think it probably makes sense that that's what would be required of God's chosen people because the purpose of the Jewish people is to bring is for us to bring God godliness into the world and therefore it's not surprising that if our job is to bring the spiritual into a physical we're going to be forced throughout our history to become a little bit detached or a lot a bit detached <laughs> to uh, to the physical world to physical existence um because we're asked to transcend that to bring to to bring god into the world for whatever reason that's the way it, it needs to work for him and that that sort of has been the incredible story of the jewish people that they've shown how you know according to the laws of nature according to the laws of history according to the laws of uh nation's history it makes no sense for Jews to be here it makes no sense for them to continue to thrive given all the pain and suffering and dispersion they've been through but the point is that that's the whole purpose of God's chosen people is to be a people that transcend the physical world I heard it said quite beautifully that God in creating the world he turns nothing into something and our job as his people is to turn something back into nothing. Not And when nothing, I don't mean nothing. I mean the physical into spiritual, meaning to reveal godliness even in the spiritual, in, even in the physical world. Let's move on to uh, putting this all together. The ideas of perspective, pessimism, optimism, happiness, pleasure, purpose. Uh, to the question, which is, what is Sukkot all about? Or Sukkot, or Tabernacles. We have just, uh, tomorrow night is the first night of Sukkot, when we move from our wonderful homes into our hopefully wonderful but more temporary homes with leaves on our roof. We've just come back out of uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, only a few days ago. And ten days before that, we had Rosh Hashanah, the start of the year. Now, these are days which are very serious days, days of self-introspection and um, trying to reattach ourselves to our Creator, put Hashem, God, in front of us as the King once more, to reaffirm Him as the King in our lives. Uh, where we think back about all our deeds that we've done over the past year and will be, get, be, be put into the Book of Life or the Book of, of, of Death. Or we, do we have a good year, a bad year? Can we atone for our sins? Can we ask for forgiveness from our fellow man? And, from Hashem, can we get to that level? And then we have those days, very intense days, and then we transition only a few days later into Sukkot. 
a festival with two main mitzvot, two main sort of commandment laws. One is to live in this temporary home of sukkah for seven days, and the other one is to shake some random bits of uh, palm branch and a citrus fruit. The love and the etrog. God, we are weird. We are a weird bunch. So, in light of the things we discussed so far, Ollie, what is Sukkot all about? What's it all about? I can't tell you what it's all about. I'll, I'll say one as we th- as we discussed yeah. earlier, we don't know the all. We can't know all the reasons. And but my, my my transition into this is that um, the term that we give for Sukkot in our, our prayers is a zman simchatenu, a time of simcha, happiness, joy. And yet we're sitting in a hut shaking some leaves around. So yeah, in that in light of all of that. What is the God? Well, the, the the Torah actually gives a re- it says you should dwell in huts mm. for seven days because um, because you 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 dwelled in I'm not I'm paraphrasing entirely but it says because you dwelled in Sukkot when you left Egypt. Yes. Now our forefathers dwelled in sort of huts and deserts yeah. post Egypt before yeah. they entered the land of Israel. Yeah. Now interestingly, uh, Rabbi David Foreman mm-hmm. uh, talked about he he has a great um, video series on Sukkot. And he says, it's interesting how when it comes to uh, Shavuot and Pesach, Passover, they both commemorate a certain moment in time, the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai, the Exodus from Egypt, whereas Sukkot is less about a particular moment in time. It's actually about sort of a thing that we did, Mm. right, throughout 40 years in in, in the wilderness. Um, But he says, actually, interestingly enough, you could read the verse where it says you should dwell, dwell, dwell in Sukkot because you, because you dwelled, um, again, I'm slightly paraphrasing, I need to double check. Because you dwell, it says because you dwelled in Sukkot when you left Egypt. And he said, you noticed something really interesting, where was the first geographic place the Jews went to when they left Egypt? You know what it was called? Is it called Sukkot? Yes. Yeah. So he said, is it possible that it's actually talking, when it says you dwelled in Sukkot, it's actually talking about that place we first dwelled in on the very first night after we left Egypt? Could that be another way of reading it? And uh, What's he trying to, of course, it may, it, it's, it, you know, it can be both, it can be both for 40 years in the wilderness, but also perhaps that moment, that night. He said, if you think about it, imagine what it must have felt like that night. You know, we've been in, 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 Egypt for hundreds of years yes it was a horrible existence but it's what we knew and suddenly we're being asked we're following you know God basically into into the into the desert we're living in these uh very poorly uh constructed and slightly fragile tents under the the night sky in the desert you know with all our cattle and our kids and we're you know it, it one might feel a little bit vulnerable in a different kind of way like you know what 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 now what happens now and the theme of Sukkot of us reliving that experience of being out in the desert perhaps on that that first night um or perhaps throughout our time in the wilderness um and we talk about the quality of our existence you know being a little bit more uncomfortable being out in the open in outside not in in the comfort of our house and having a a a roof where you can see a little bit into the the night sky and it's not so 
Um, you know, yeah, it doesn't. It might not. Might, well, in a, in terms of the quality in a, in a, of one's yeah, existence, yeah, yeah. yes. And what it's trying. I think the theme of Sukkot is one of trust. It's like, as we were saying earlier in, in Moses' speech, the Jew does not rely on uh, physical security, and it doesn't. The, the Jew doesn't rely on. The quality of their existence throughout our history to be always a constant static, uh, you know, 10 out of 10. But what keeps us going, what we do feel we can always rely on and what Sokot is asking of us to remember is our reliance on God and his His taking care of us. And therefore, that's the theme of Sokot, um, I, I, I think. That's what I, that's what I think it's getting at. You know, we've gone through the, the rebuilding the relationship, reaffirming the relationship through the the high holy days, and now we enter Sukkot and we 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 affirm that trust that, that should, um, you know, keep us going throughout the year. Um, interestingly, what is the opposite of trust? Mm. What opposite is, of trust? Yeah. What happens when you lack you, of trust? Yeah. Is a English word for it. Yeah. How can I trust you? How can I know? You know, it kind of betrayal. Yeah, yeah. betrayal. It's really, and this I think is the ultimate uh, enemy of happiness. Actually, when we're talking about happiness, mm-hmm. most all, all 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 anxieties, all discontent, comes down to one thing: fear. That's what actually animates a lot of human activity. It's what animates a lot of human insecurities a lot of human discontent it's a worry fear am i going to be okay you know is this enough will will i you know all these concerns of one's one's own well-being they all are all ultimately rooted in fear um you know i've always felt like imagine if imagine if what one knew what the transition was going to be like from living to dying and they knew what heaven they they came into they were living in this world and they knew what the experience of heaven was going to be like and they also knew very clearly what you know god spoke to them and what what their mission was in this world and they felt a sense of god's looking after them and they they, they, you know Mm -hmm. i think you'd be very secure one would feel very secure you're not going to be frightened by death because you know what's to come sure uh you know what your job is you feel looked after by God, um, and that's all. Ve- and it's it, it would be relatively, I think, relatively straightforward. You, people people are prepared to go through uh, challenge and f- exertion and discomfort uh, when they know it's for a, for a good cause, especially when it's for an infinite cause. The challenge that we have is that our memory of being in heaven has been zapped. And we don't have God speaking to us directly as we once did at Mount Sinai. And things are a little bit, you know, we live in a world in which God hides his face. And so trust is much harder and fear the potential to be stronger. And the work of Sukkot and the work of Judaism throughout every aspect of it is to build a strong sense of trust and the stronger the trust becomes the less of the fear is and the less of the fear is 
the more one feels happy and content. I think fear is the root of all kinds of anxiety, shame, anger, um, just general worry, um, you know, jealousy, insecurities. A lot of this just comes down to fear of one's own sense of self. Will, will I be okay? You know, without this, you know, I think that's the root. And, and yeah, I just think that's, it's actually one of the most common things that God says in the Torah is do not fear. Um, if yeah, we didn't have fear. That. Yeah. Sorry? You can read that also into the trilogy of festivals that we've, we're in right now. Yeah. That Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the days where we reaffirm that trust, that, that faith in God. And once we've developed that, then we can be vulnerable in, in Sukkot, but whilst have the ultimate level of joy, of simcha, of pleasure, of happiness. Yeah. Because we've got that trust, we've established, and we, if we were to enter Sukkot without developing that trust, it wouldn't work the same way. Yeah, yeah. But it, I think it's important to clarify to to, to listeners that J Judaism in no way glorifies physical pain and suffering. We want to do everything we can to alleviate it, and God also hates it. Mm. it the, the the Gemara says that. Every day, God regrets creating evil. He regrets creating exile. He regrets it. He hates it. He doesn't mm -hmm. like it. For some reason, he, he, he needs humanity to temporarily go through it. But our job is in no way just to say, oh, okay, no, that's fine. That's the reason. No, our job is actually to be as discomforted as, as God is and to, to be partners with him in, in, in alleviating it. But don't, don't um, you need pain, suffering and evil? Uh, to exist, otherwise you don't appreciate and recognise the difference between that and good and kindness and pleasure and happiness. It would seem you can't know what a good film is unless you've ever seen a bad film. It would seem temporarily, humanity needs it, but not not eternally. No, for some reason it was required, um, according to certain uh, views of reading the Adam and Eve story, which were also coming out too soon that was something that was actually needed of them to eat from the tree, to enter the world of pain mm. and darkness and God hiding his face. But it is not um, the world that God desires ultimately. And we don't glorify it. And we want a world totally free of suffering and a world in which both the quality of our existence and the quality of our life is perfect. Cool. I'm wondering actually if we could, if that might be a good place to leave it. Yeah. Unless you've got any sort of. Um, no, I think that's quite a nice way to stop. A nice sort of very. Vault on circus. Okay, I'll tell you actually one last. I've got one last thought that I thought of myself actually. Um, the floor is yours. Yeah. I'll tell you one final thing I thought of myself a few years ago, and I was wondering is there any like. Obviously, there there is, but I'm trying to make sense. Actually, let me start that again. One final thing I'd just uh, share about Sukkot is I, I I sometimes think like, what is the direction of travel that we go on as we go through the different festivals, the different chagim, Torah mandated chagim, um, throughout the year. So uh, according to the, the, there are two Jewish, there are two New Years. There's a New Year for Humanity, which begins on Rosh Hashanah, but the Jewish people, the Jewish style is actually Nisan, because yep. in, in Passover. So let's start there. So you start with Passover, which is the time of, we call the Zaman 
Khairutaini, the time of our freedom. Mm-hmm. Then we go to Shavuot, which is the Zaman Matan Torahitaini, the time of the giving of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Then we go to Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment. Then we go to Yom Kippur, the day of forgiveness. And then we go to Sukkot, which is Zaman Simchatainu, the time of our happiness. And I think one of the things that um, I'm excluding the rabbinic festivals, um, but I think one of the messages that we're being taken on here is this is actually perhaps the journey of life. You enter this world, you're given free will, freedom, Passover, you begin your journey out of, you know, out of Egypt, and then you're given the Torah, which is your uh, your our collective national mission, but also everyone has their own personal mission. And you've got to use your free will to actualize that. Then everyone has their own personal day of judgment once they've completed and uh, their mission in this world, then they have a, 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 a sort of a spiritual uh, cleansing process in Yom Kippur. Um, and actually, if you look at the, lit- the, the liturgy that we say, it's very much related to like a heavenly kind of um, uh, introspection, coming to terms with, with one's, one's own life. Mm. Um, and then Sukkot, I think, is very... Um, emblematic of Olam Haba, you know, the next world, which actually we ultimately believe will be back down here on earth. Um, but this idea of achieving, of, of, be, of, of arriving, you know, I think that's, that's Sukkot is, in some ways there's actually lots of, uh, I think, um, symbolism connected to the Garden of Eden in the Sukkah. Um, I've read some, some, some of that. Um, and it's very much about it's very relationship oriented, uh, and it's about. Well, on God, Neva, I'm pretty sure that the fruit that we believe that uh, Adam and Eve ate was not an apple, as often no, depicted. No, there's a few different opinions. But I think one of the main opinions is that it was a uh, an etrog. I've never heard etrog. No, I've, I've heard grapes. I've heard fig. Um, I might be mistaken, but I'm, no, it could be. It may well be. Maybe well be. But either way, either mm. way, that that it's. I think that's that's the journey it's taking taking us on. So Sukkot is like it's, it's time of your happiness because it's the time of, of 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 achieving. It's also they compare the three foot festivals Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot to um, the process of a relationship. Passover is the engagement, God extending His hand to us. Mm-hmm. Shavuot is the marriage, and then Sukkot is the moving in together. Um, so it's really about being at home with God. The Sukkot is a very it's about yeah it's about feeling at home with Him. Um, so. Yeah, happy Sukkot. <laughs> happy Sukkot. Hope you have happy a wonderful, is the right word. Happy, yeah. <laughs> very good, mate. Very, very good.